The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. If saving the future means shooting life into you with love-laced bullets of spit, then I'm down for it, with an attempt to make your heart bleed in order to receive the seed. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, it reads, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. I'm just dropping these seeds that you can take heed and at least pay an attention. And I know looking within be hard, seeing those internal scars or hardened stone heart. Fears everywhere. Fears of sharing, fears of caring and giving too much away. News flash, fear doesn't save the day. It hinders and holds us back. And poverty isn't a demon we need to attack. Greed is. Poverty exists because of lack of faith. And you could always give hope away because that process is necessary for growth and giving adds value to our worth. We can create and give birth to dreams, visions, and stay on God-driven missions. And following requires submission and we always want to lead. Forgetting our sacrifice for our peace may require a small fee or the doing of a kind deed, sowing dream big seeds to our brothers and sisters in need. There's power in being of service, intentional and on purpose. We somehow must re-begin, no longer just existing and resisting God's word, choosing to feed off negativity while exhaling toxic energy. If we would just resist the urge to purge judgment and uncompassionate reactions, how quickly we forget how things can happen. And just like that, in the blink of an eye, our focus off God and flesh becomes our God. No longer moving like God's designed by spirit. Inconsistencies and flaws we cover and hide with stuff. Never having enough. Don't want to give too much. Not even love. But thank God for not holding a grudge. You know, it's, it's not that you and I are greedy, but we would all agree that there are greedy people out there. No, we're not greedy. We just want our fair share. Or maybe, let me put it differently. It's not that we even want our fair share. We just don't want somebody else to get our fair share. So this gets real complicated when you get into this kind of a season when you got election day only a few days away. You got all kinds of political issues going on and worse, political vitriol. And so here's how this kind of a season messes with our view of finances. Maybe you're like me, and just a few days ago, you got a really nice letter from the government in the mail telling you that your premium, like mine, maybe was going up just like mine, like 29%. And you get that, and here's my reaction. I'm like, are you kidding me? I thought this was supposed to be affordable, and now I'm paying more money, more money that I don't have, and I don't want to give it away to them, even if I do have it. And then we think about taxes, and I think, man, I don't pay more taxes, and they're just going to take my money, and they're going to give it to people who don't deserve it, and they're going to give out handouts, and they're going to go giving away all of our money, right? And we struggle with this because we're told that's how we should think. And then we hear one group calling other groups names because of the political mess and the political news and the political issues. So one group shouts, racism, and you're a homophobe. And the other group goes, you don't care about people. You're a bunch of hate mongers. And, and they yell back and forth. And in the middle of that, there's people saying, well, they're lazy. And well, you don't, you don't care enough. And it, it's not hard then to just extrapolate that out just a little bit further. And you can actually see how the German powerful were able to convince the German citizens to allow them to inflict unimaginable atrocities against their neighbors and their friends. 
I know it's an extreme example, and I am not leveraging it lightly. But how do you think that these powerful leaders were able to persuade next-door neighbors to, to not care less about whether or not they murdered people in mass. Again, please understand, I'm not just borrowing this lightly. I'm, there's a point of where I'm going with this, and, and it's this. It's, uh, Paul Bloom, a historian who wrote about this season of the rise of Nazism, he, he wrote a book with the subtitle, The Origins of Good and Evil, and in it, he references a quote from George Orwell about how you create class warfare, how you get people to not care about other people, and he writes this, borrowing this quote from George Orwell, where he says this, the real secret of class distinction is summed up in four frightful words, the lower class smell. You can have an affection for a murderer or a sodomite, but you cannot have affection for a man whose breath stinks. I mean habitually stinks. However well you may wish him, however much you may admire his mind and character, if his breath stinks, he is horrible, and in your heart of hearts, you will hate him. One word, and you see it all over the news and in headlines and on Facebook and social media. It's this, it's a simple word of how you pit one group against another group. How you get people to disengage from caring for their fellow human beings. And it's one word, disgust. When we become disgusted by other people, we disengage and we stop caring. Please know this message has nothing to do with politics. In fact, very much the opposite. This is about you and I. It's far more personal. It's about our community, our neighborhoods, about our city, about you and I and our own hearts. And so what happens is we start judging people. And we, so we drive by someone who's clearly doesn't look like they've got it together. And we're like, man, look how lazy they are. Man, if they could afford to, put a, to buy a tattoo and they could afford cigarettes, they can sure, certainly afford to put food on their own table. Right? Or we go, man, if they just worked a little harder, they could take care of themselves. And then others, maybe you're in a situation where you don't have anything and you're looking at pointing fingers at the people who have it. And they're like, you're just like, man, they're so greedy. If they just cared a little bit more about me and us, man, maybe they could help pay for our problems, right? And so we have these two groups equally disgusted who each see themselves as the personal expert on other people's pain. And we have a lot of experts on other people's pain right now. And let me, let me challenge you. In the middle of all of that, there is something far more personal going on in our own community, in Washington County. You know, one in eight Washington County residents are living in poverty. That means a household of four living on $23,850 or less. I get it, that's some of you. I get it, those are your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues. One in five children in our county are living in poverty. 8% of our senior citizens are living in poverty. You wanna look at the poverty rate among different ethnic groups? 31% of the African-American community in Washington County is living in poverty, 22% of the Latinos. And if you look at female-headed households, it's 37%. What that means is just broadly, something's, something's not working right. Like there's people in need, people who are hurting, 
These are our friends, our coworkers, our colleagues. Again, I realize that's some of us. And so then what do we do about it? And so I thought, well, rather than keeping hitting at you, and some of you, I could see it in your eyes. You're like, man, this is like, this is uncomfortable. I feel like I'm stepping on my own toes. But so let me just go way, way back in time. Let's go back to an ancient story said about 2,500 years ago um, in a, of a city in ruin, a city maybe just a little bit like ours, where there is groups of haves and have-nots. There's people in deep systemic poverty. And so I'm going to bring you back in time. Let me set it up this way. The nation of Jerusalem was in ruins. The, the city, the buildings, the walls in rubble. A city destitute and broken, people devastated. A, one young man believed that he could turn around his city. Nehemiah was a servant to the king, King Artaxerxes in Persia. The only thing is Nehemiah wasn't Persian. He was Jewish, and he wanted to go back to Jerusalem and become part of the solution rather than continuing to serve under the king. And so he got permission and the blessing and the resources of the king to go back to Jerusalem and become part of the solution. And so he did just that. He went back, he gathered up the citizens, he rallied them to get to work and to rebuild their city. And they believed that this was a good work. And so they worked hard. And as you know, when you do good work, you get opposition. And so the first part of opposition they got was enemies, armies from other surrounding nations gathered against them to fight them and to threaten them and to intimidate them. But they didn't stop working. So then those same outside enemies uh, made fun of them and mocked them and ridiculed them, spread rumors and lies about them. But the Jewish people kept working to rebuild. And so when outside opposition doesn't work, there is an intentional and intelligent evil who, if it doesn't work from the outside, will stir it up from the inside, meaning he'll tear us apart from within. And so that's what began to happen in the city of Jerusalem you see this divide that begins to rise up from groups of people within their own community. So we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. We're hungry. There's something wrong. We, you know, we're working really hard, but our families are going hungry, he continues. Others were saying, we have mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during this famine. So it was a time of great need. There was an economic downturn. Obviously, you have a city in ruins. Everybody's just trying to survive in order to meet, meet their own needs. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So here, here it is, right? You have this group of people within the whole community that are saying, man, we're in trouble. We've worked hard, but... Life hasn't gone as planned, and we've had to mortgage our homes, mortgage our fields. We, we've even mortgaged the future of our own children just to survive. And you don't have to look very far to see that in our own city, right? And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to point this out to make anybody feel guilty. I am pointing out so that we stop pointing fingers at politics and government and other agencies to become part of the solution. Because the next thing Nehemiah does is he says, this is our problem, not their problem. Verse 
uh, verse 8, Nehemiah is challenging them in how they're thinking. He said, we have brought back our, bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles, meaning the whole nation was in exile. And so they were able to return to the city out of exile, out of slavery. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us, meaning people are actually selling their children to slavery just to put food on the table. Like this is a pretty serious crisis, right? Like at the very least, we can all agree this time is worse than what we're going through in our own community and city. But Nehemiah is saying, look, we need to become part of the solution. They kept quiet because they could not find, they could find nothing to say. And the reason is here were people whose consciences became, um, uh, hurt, they became aware that they could not justify their own greed and realize we need to become part of the solution, but they didn't know how to come up with a solution. And so they're looking at, they're listening to what Nehemiah is saying, and they're saying, okay, now what? So Nehemiah continued. So I continued, what, are you, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And here's what Nehemiah does. And this is where we're gonna kind of pick up. He goes like this, the problems in our city, the issues of poverty and want and need, they're not outside problems. They're not problems because of government and economies and famines and trouble. It's, a, it's an issue in our own hearts and it's about our response to God. This is a God issue of how we care and how we respond or how we become critics of the issues and the crisis in our own community. And so that's where I wanna pick up and make this really personal for you and I. What do, when you look at the issues around you, you could easily become paralyzed and say like, yeah, I mean, what do I do about that? I mean, how do I get involved? What, what can I do to become part of the solution rather than just being part of the problem? How do I shift from being a critic to becoming compassionate? And, and this is where, so Nehemiah brings it to their attention. He goes, look, this is a problem. We've got to do something about it. And, you know, my heart for us as we've launched this For Our City campaign is whether you are in the haves or the have-not camp, whether you have abundance or you have little, every one of us need to become part of the solutions rather than part of the problem. It does no good to point out issues if we're not willing to become involved in the solution to those issues. And so what do we do? How, how can you personally get involved in this. And so I want to give you just a challenge, a challenge that everybody can respond to. And it's this, you and I, we need to be generous. This is not about you getting more money or even about you giving more money. This is about us becoming generous in our hearts because you can love God, whether you are rich or poor, and you can be unloving whether you are rich or poor. You can be righteous in poverty and you can be unrighteous in wealth and vice versa. So this is about us having a right heart with God. Why? Because financial blessing does not equate to spiritual blessing and financial want does not leave you wanting spiritually. No matter what you don't have, you can have an abundance in relationship with God. See, here's why. Because every one of us, every one of us are spiritually bankrupt. I mean, deep in our inner being, 
We all enter this world and live in this world utterly corrupted and in great debt. That is why you can look at the, you can read stories and headlines about the very wealthiest people in the world, and yet they're always in want. There's nothing that satisfies them. Why? Because in their inner hearts, they're bankrupt. And then you can go and interact with people that are the poorest of the poor in the world, and yet they have joy. I've been in their homes. I was just in uh, some, some individuals' homes recently, and I thought, they don't even know how poor they are because they're so rich. How is that possible? Okay, let's start with the premise that we are each individually bankrupt spiritually because sin corrupts our heart and robs us and leaves us empty and broken. Sin, which is the driving force of our life, sin, which compels us to live our lives in the opposite direction of how God calls us to live. Sin pushes us toward selfishness, caring more about our needs being met while equally being callous toward the cares and needs of others. Sin, which is what cuts us off from right relationship with God. And when we're cut off from God, we live spiritually and utterly bankrupt. Nothing will ever satisfy the great void in our life because of our need for God. This ultimate spiritual debt leads toward an eternal judgment. The debt of sin paid off forever in eternal suffering. That's a problem. That's a bigger problem than anything going on in our city or our country. So what do we do about it? We do nothing about it. God does not come to earth, and this message is not God demanding for you to become generous. God is generous. God came to earth looking in at our spiritual crisis and our bankruptcy of life. And he came personally to get involved in the crisis of sin. How? Jesus Christ took our collective eternal death sentence on himself and he paid our spiritual debt so that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ by faith is forgiven of their debt and given God's grace. The word grace is the riches of heaven, the riches of God. What does that look like? It means that God made a spiritual deposit into your life bank account. Don't don't go all financial here. Don't go pulling up your bank records on your iPhone or your smartphone. I'm talking about in your emotional, your mental, your spiritual life, God puts a rich deposit into you and he makes people who are otherwise spiritually bankrupt overwhelmingly and eternally rich through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, don't immediately jump to stuff to finances, to what I have or don't have. I'm talking about the deepest part of who you are becoming overwhelmingly rich through the generosity of God. So here's the deal, right? God comes to you and he gives you new life through faith in Jesus Christ. He gives you eternal life. He pours his heavenly blessings into our life so that no matter what you do or do not have financially or physically, you have the greatest wealth and abundance of God available to you. You have joy and hope and purpose and significance. You have meaning and a life trajectory toward an eternity in paradise with God. 
God. Now that's rich. Now when you receive God and you receive his spirit and you receive new life, you begin to receive his character, his nature. So a God who is generous is now living in me who was formerly bankrupt, transforming me into a generous person. That's why I challenge you to be generous. But you can't do this on your own. The only way you're ever going to be truly generous is if you receive a new spirit through the spirit of a generous God. Now, when you receive a new nature, your character is being changed by the generosity of God. Now and then and only then can you truly become generous, which then requires us to take another step. How do you become generous? Well, to be generous, we need to become the reflection of God's generosity, right? Nehemiah goes like this. He goes, look, this is a problem. We can't be an embarrassment to God. We should properly reflect the generosity of God through our lives. Here's the deal, right? Your life should function like a mirror accurately reflecting the nature of God. Only, right, this only works if you are transformed through the spirit of God. If you haven't been transformed by the spirit of God, then your takeaway in this message is to get your heart right in relationship with God. Don't leave here and go, I have a moral duty to be generous. Don't leave here and go, I have to be determined to give more. None of that will work. Because at the core of your heart, if you're bankrupt, no amount of giving is ever going to make up for the greed driving our inner being. So we need to first get our heart right with God. But when we get our hearts right with God, then we need to become the reflection of the generosity of God. God did not come demanding. He came giving. God did not come telling you to do something. He came offering himself for us in sacrificial death. So when we receive new life through Jesus Christ, we become like God, right? We become a giver just like God is a giver. We become generous just as God is generous. So when you go through the community or you see a situation in a crisis, when you see a financial difficulty or you see somebody in need, when you read on the headlines about the issues in the world around us and you think, man, somebody needs to do something about that. Man, there are real problems. Man, the government needs to solve those problems. Man, they need to start a nonprofit. Somebody needs to do something. Maybe you even quietly pray. Maybe you pray for, a natural, for the people uh, dramatically impacted by a natural disaster. Maybe you hear about a war. Maybe in our own communities, you hear about the statistics of people in want and need, and you pray for them. Let me challenge you. If God has not responded to the needs and the hurts of people around us yet, it's because you and I have not responded yet. We are the response of God to the needs and the crisis around us. The greatest antidote to greed is giving with an attitude of generosity and gratitude. Meaning because I'm so overwhelmed by who God is and what he's done for me, I want to give. And I don't just give, I give sacrificially and I give generously. When we look at the story of Nehemiah, his response is this, I am my brothers, verse 10, I am my brothers and 
my men are also lending the people money and grain. He goes, look, I am immediately, when I saw what was going on, I'm not just telling you what to do. I am personally getting involved in this. I want to become part of the solution. I don't just want to point out problems. I want to become part of the response of God to the needs in the people's lives around me. But, we, but let the exacting of usury stop. He's just making a simple statement. Hey, you get, at the very least, we need to stop being greedy. We need to stop re- ripping people off. We got to stop cheating each other first. Give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them. Usury would just be a, another word for interest, significant interest on what people have borrowed from you. The hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. See, here's what Nehemiah does. He moves from taking it personally to making it practical. He goes, we've got to get personally and practically involved in the lives of people around us, involved in those who are hurting and in need, simply because we are the reflection of God. Some of you have heard me use this quote before. I was actually in another country uh, on a mission trip, looking at the need and the want of people that are desperate for, you know, for someone to show up and help. And I just had this thought of like, man, hell is so greedy, and yet heaven is so generous. Let's respond to hell's greed with heaven's generosity. You are heaven's generosity. Not because you have abundance physically or in the stuff you have, but because you have an abundance of the riches of God. That doesn't mean you have to do everything to solve every problem in the world around you, but that does mean that you and I have to do something. We have to become personally and practically involved simply because we recognize that we are the response of God to the needs and the crisis and the, and the hurting people around us. And when you hear statistics of people in need, guess what, guys? Those are our neighbors, and we have to become personally involved. We can't just relegate to saying, you know what, that, that's the government's problem, or somebody else needs to figure that out. No, you and I, as, as people who love Jesus and are loved by Jesus as part of the church, and, you know, during this series, we got 24 churches coming together to say, you know what? We're going to become part of the solution. How? Well, let me keep reading, but understand that it, it's because we, we realize that we are, you are, the reflection of God's generosity. I'm going to continue reading down in verse 14. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like this. Okay, how do I make this make sense to you? So Nehemiah, who is an ambassador from the king to help rebuild the city, so you could immediately let your brain shift and go like, this is good, a good political platform, but again, I want you to make, keep this personal. He was like this, look, other people were ripping each other off. I have the privilege to tax you. I have the privilege to enjoy the abundance of the king, but because of my attitude toward God, I understand that I have to act differently. So now let's keep this personal. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of, on this wall. All of the men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire land. So there is a simple 
principle that you and I can borrow from this on how we can live differently. And that is to be generous, you and I can live on less in order to give more. This, re- this requires a complete transformation of our priorities. See, most of us, and I don't want to like call you out, but I'll just say me, okay? I have a list of all the things I want to buy and I want to get if I have more money. Right, so Laura and I, we might we have a little bank accounts. We're going to save some money, put a little bit of money aside, and man, when we save enough money, we're going to get that, or we're going to go there, right? And and here is our challenge: because we have this list, any time we get more resource, we get more. So I receive more so that I can have more, because that's our priority. Because we've been hardwired to think this way from the time we were tiny little children. We realize it's all about me, and I want to get more, and I want to have more, and I want to acquire more, and I'm going to get that Christmas present, I'm going to buy that, and I'm going to get this, and when I have enough money, I'm going to trade in my piece of junk car, and I'm going to get a better one. And and because we live in a, a nation of accumulation, we don't think about being generous. We think about getting. But here, so let me let me just give you a radical new way of thinking about the world around you. When you understand that you are the reflection of God's generosity, which means we live on less in order to give more, that means I don't get more so that I can have more. I get more so I can give more. God has not given us much so we can have much. He has given us much so we can give much. It's about reprioritizing the way we look at the world around us. When you understand that you are a conduit of the generosity of God, then you reprioritize how you live, which means we ask very simple, basic questions. Trust me, on a regular basis with my own family, I sit down with them and, I, and I, we ask these questions. What, do we, what can we stop doing and what do we not need? Right? So do I need everything I have and do I need everything I want and do I need to be doing everything I'm busy doing? And when you ask those two simple questions, it transforms your way of thinking from a getting mentality to a giving mentality. Now, remember, when you're giving, you're giving to God. You're giving for God, and you're giving to God. This isn't about getting attention. This isn't about, you know, somebody recognizing what we're doing. When, when, when you give to the church and we give to others, we're not doing it to toot our own horn. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to make a name for God. We want others to know the generosity of God. We want them to experience the wealth of God. And so we understand we are conduits of that. And so part of that does mean we give to and through the local church. And you might think, like I've always like, look at pastors who talk about money and giving, and I'm like, oh, that's self-serving. So I used to be worried about that, and I used to just avoid the topic. And now I've learned to become incredibly unapologetic about encouraging people to give to and through the local church, and I'll tell you why. Because I have never seen a better community with a better investment of how financial resources are used for the glory of God. I can tell you, your investment in and through Lifehouse Church is probably one of the greatest investments you will ever make. Because you might not hear about how the church is helping the community, but I assure you, We are responding to the needs in any way and every way we can. We are empowering and mobilizing volunteers and people to go out and impact our community. Now, it doesn't let you off the hook, all right? It doesn't mean, well, if I give to the church, I don't have to do anything. I'll get to that in just a moment. What I am saying is this. I am seeing how the resources 
of what you give as an investment into the church are changing lives. People who come in who are otherwise addicts, who are impacted by the love of God, who go back out totally different. People who come in maybe as a, as a drug dealer who leave not dealing drugs. People who come in with a broken marriage leaving restored. Guess what? That has an effect on the community. And then the church that's responding to the needs of a community and responding to the needs of communities across the globe. So I'm just simply saying, there's no better investment I have ever seen than in and through the local church. And I would vouch for LifeHouse. I think it's a great investment of your time and your financial resource. But don't stop there, all right? Now, take it personal by saying, not only a gift to God through the local church, I'm going to become personally involved in the lives of people around me. I'm going to get to know, as we've been going through this series, right, challenging you, get to know people, have conversations with your neighbors, find out people's needs and hurts and brokenness because you are the response of God. But at some moments, you might find out about financial crisis or resource crisis. And guess what? That's where you and I can get personally involved. I don't mean that you just give it without accountability. Become part of the solution. Help people climb out of their mess. You don't need to pass the buck and hand them off to somebody else. You can personally give. You can personally help. You can personally volunteer and serve and become part of the solution of God to the crisis and the needs in the community around us. Let me give you one more. Let me read you a passage that kind of practically implies this principle, and then we'll land it. Here it is, verse 17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Then he goes on to list all the food that he serves when people gather to eat at his table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. Every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. What he's saying is... I took everything given to me and I gave it away. I served a huge banquet every day. To be generous, we need to live generously. Meaning it's not about writing a check. It's not about making a PayPal, you know, or not pay, what, what, push pay, you know, payment. It, it's, not, it's not just about writing a tithe check or an offering. It, it, this is about becoming, developing a lifestyle of generosity. Like, it's crazy to think that maybe we should just open our homes and our dining room tables to just serving others. I know that's crazy talk. Maybe that means inviting someone out for a meal that you would normally never invite out. Do not treat people as though they smell. They're our friends, our neighbors. It's not politics. It's people, people that matter to God. Maybe if we started having meals with other people, maybe if we just started opening up our home and our resources, maybe if we let our children play with their children, we started putting our arms around each other, it would transform just our neighborhood. Maybe it would transform just our city. Look, I'm not talking about fixing systemic, national, and global issues. Like, we're not that grandiose, but man, I could do it in my own neighborhood. You and I, we could do this in our own city. Look, if just LifeHouse people, just us, and I get it, some of you, your first time guests, and you're like, look, I don't, don't get me in the middle of this. Hey, 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 if you believe in Jesus, then you're already in the middle of it. 
So here's the deal, right? If just us, just the people that are part of the seven services that attended on this weekend, if we became generous, started living generously, and started inviting people in our homes, and started taking people out for a meal, or just started hanging out with people, started treating people as people, don't you think that just us, this group right here, don't you think we could transform our city? I'm kind of thinking we could change the attitude in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. Like, we could actually begin to transform our neighborhoods and our city. You've got to fundamentally believe that. We are the response of God. Okay, so now what do you do about this? What, what can you do right now? Here it is. First, don't leave here morally determined to give more. That would be the wrong response. First, you have to make sure your heart is right with God. Have I received the generosity of God? Is Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior? Has he forgiven me of sin and have I received his spirit by repenting of my way of living and allowing him to transform me? If not, then that's your first and only step. Get your heart right with God first. Everything else comes out of a motivation having been changed by the heart of God. Now, if you believe in Jesus, then you're on the hook for the whole rest of the sermon. If you believe in Jesus, then are you the reflection of God's generosity? If you believe in Jesus, are you living on less so you can give more? If you believe in Jesus, are you living generously? Can I challenge you? Would you just take a moment right now and maybe just humble your heart before God and allow God's spirit to speak to you. And maybe there's just one commitment you can make right now, as uncomfortable as it may feel, one commitment where you can take hold of what I've shared and say, God, help me to live differently. Would you take a moment? Would you pray and just allow God's spirit to speak to you? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.